You are listening to a special feature episode of So What, a podcast from Canadian Mennonite University. Hello, my name is Jonas Cornelson, and I'm the host of So What from CMU. CMU is in Treaty 1, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I'm in Treaty 7, Calgary, Alberta. For the winter of 2022, now slowly becoming spring, I've been having conversations on reconciliation in Canada with Christy Anderson, CMU's Indigenous Engagement Advisor. Some of the inspiration for Christy's involvement in this series came from a sermon she gave in a chapel service at CMU. This was in fall of 2021, shortly before Canada's first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. With the title, Destroy This Man-Made Temple, Christy tells her own faith story and calls for change in how settler Christians relate to Indigenous peoples' traditional spiritual practices and ways of knowing. I will be speaking with Christy about selected clips from this sermon on the podcast, but it deserves to be heard in full. The chapel service last September where Christy spoke was not recorded, but she generously re-recorded her message at CMU's studios this winter. Thank you, Christy, for this gift of your story and wisdom. Without further ado, here is Christy Anderson. The name of this sermon is Destroy This Man-Made Temple. Christy Anderson Indigenikas nin Penemuteng Indoji nin Maigan Indodem. The name that was gifted to me in ceremony is Old Bear Woman. I want to welcome you here today and recognize that we are blessed to live and learn on Treaty 1 territory, the original and unceded territories of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, the Dene, Dakota, and the homelands of the Metis Nation. We acknowledge that when our ancestors signed Treaty Number 1 150 years ago, Indigenous nations did not hand over their rights to these lands. Rather, they entered into nation-to-nation -nation agreements with settlers to share this land. That way, may all live peacefully together and have access to Minobimatsawin, or the good life. As we approach the historic first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on September 30th, I would like all of us to reflect on what it means to be signatories to treaties, agreements that were made to share in the bounty and benevolence of Her Majesty the Queen and her servants. These treaties enacted through ceremony indicated to our ancestors that we had entered into a kin relationship with one another. We had become brothers and sisters, equals. I'd also like us to reflect upon how the treaties have ultimately served to benefit settlers to the detriment of the original inhabitants and caretakers of this land we all call home. As we reflect on our past 150 plus years of relationship, I challenge each one of you to consider how you might personally, and we might collectively, respond to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 calls to action, and to think about how we might become better neighbors and relatives to one another as we move forward in a spirit of writing relationships. I've never considered myself a preacher, nor did I imagine that I would be standing here today giving a sermon. However, I did receive a vision a few years back that God wanted, no, 
needed me to share what has been divinely shared with me through my journey of coming to know and understand who I am as an Anishinaabe Kwe feminist Christian. When I was an undergraduate student here at CMU in 2009 to 2011, I loved learning about the Bible so much that I seriously considered pursuing a master's in theology, but God had other plans for me. Instead, I took a leap of faith and followed the prompting of the Great Spirit, which led me to study the history of Indigenous peoples of this land in grad school. In taking that leap of faith, my world was turned upside down as I learned about the incriminating actions of the church and colonial state and their efforts to systematically eliminate my ancestors through the process of settler colonialism. Thus began the process of decolonizing my own mind. This process was so tumultuous, so traumatic, that it inherently caused me to question not my faith in Jesus, but my faith and trust in the church, both as an institution and as God's representatives, who seemed so uninterested in acknowledging their role and their responsibility for righting past wrongs and righting our broken relationships. I found myself questioning, indeed doubting, whether my faith could withstand the truth of this legacy of colonialism and the weaponizing of Christianity that was intended to destroy Indigenous spirits, cultures, and humanity. As the daughter of an Indian residential school survivor who rejected his culture, embraced Christianity, yet never found healing from the abuse he suffered at the hands of those church leaders, I found that this time was a critical test of my faith. Who was I? What did it mean to claim a Christian identity as an Indigenous person? How would I understand who I was as an Indigenous person without exploring not just my history, but also my culture? Could these two parts of my identity coexist peacefully and somehow enhance one another? This journey was a painful time of unlearning and relearning, of deconstructing and reconstructing, and of consolidating the many things within me that many people said were irreconcilable. God stayed true to their promise and never left me, although at times I did feel very lost, alone, and confused. This sermon today is a reflection of what I have come to know and understand about the nature of God, state and church-sanctioned genocide, the illusion of cultural and moral superiority, and our shared human experience in the settler state of Canada, a state that was built upon a foundation of Western patriarchal white supremacist Christianity. I recognize that what I am about to share, if spoken in another time and place, would have likely ended with me burning at the stake for heresy. And in fact, some of you may walk away from this chapel thinking me a heretic. But as Jesus instructed in Matthew 28, my mission to make disciples of all nations and teach them all the things God has taught me is stronger than my desire to cater to your comfort zone. Ten years ago, as I sat in chapel here at CMU, the Lord spoke to my heart and told me that I needed to share my story of salvation here at my school in front of everyone in front of all the people who knew me only as a mature student, single mom, and pretty solid academic, God asked me to expose myself 
in a very public forum. I wept as I approached the chapel coordinator and told her that God told me I had to share my story in chapel. So I dared. I shared about my traumatic childhood filled with violence, drugs, and alcohol, abandonment, and feeling unworthy, unlovable, and defective. I spoke of a youth fueled by sex, drugs, and booze that ultimately led to a horrific crystal meth addiction. I spoke of hopelessness and wanting to die. And I told a wild tale of encountering Jesus in detox at Main Street Project on July 27, 2006, where I accepted Jesus into my heart, he revealed his face to me, and I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. It was and is a remarkable story, filled with unbelievable revelations, leading to very deep and personal relationship with God. As a young woman who had just begun to scratch the surface of colonization and had zero interest in Christianity, I'm still amazed by the fact that that one day, that one moment, that one decision literally saved my life. In my brokenness, my hopeless state, Jesus reached out to me and I answered the call. Despite what my head told me, spirit took over. When I shared my story, I was still quite new at this Christian thing, but by the time I had read the Bible from cover to cover in the first year of my sobriety, attended church faithfully each Sunday, and often two to three more times during the week for smaller studies, and I almost had a minor in theology from CMU, I was on my way to becoming a theologian. Ten years later, I stand here again as part two of that chapel story, sharing my heart and what I've learned since coming to understand my identity in Christ first, and as Anishinaabe Kwe and intergenerational survivor second. That is the order of how I've come to know, and not necessarily, importance of my identity. Today I feel vulnerable and exposed once again, but I've come to understand that vulnerability is a beautiful thing that is to be admired from afar, it certainly doesn't always feel good or safe, but it is brave. The sermon I've prepared for you today is called Destroyed This Man-Made Temple, and it is inspired by Mark 14:58. Mark's gospel is known for its hard-hitting miracles of Jesus and direct language. This gospel tells us that Jesus, quote, broke the law according to the Pharisees time and again. In Mark 3, Jesus heals a deformed hand on the Sabbath and is challenged for working on this holy day. Jesus looks around angry because he was deeply disturbed by their hard hearts. It is right after this miracle in chapter 3 that we are told the Pharisees go to Herod, the head of the Roman state, and they begin plotting to kill Jesus. Jesus had hardly begun to shake the foundation of power between church and state before the religious leaders began plotting his murder. In fact, these religious leaders carry on accusing Jesus of being from Satan. They demand he give them a miraculous sign to prove he is of God, and they challenge his authority at every turn in spite of his many miracles and growing popularity. These Pharisees were so threatened by Jesus' challenge to their systematic, hierarchical religiosity that their only solution was to murder him. Mark's gospel illustrates the frustration that Jesus, Son of God, 
felt in dealing with these patriarchs, who held insurmountable social, economic, political, and religious power, and clearly used it for their personal gain. He was disturbed and angered by their hardened hearts. When settlers came to this land we call Turtle Island, they came wielding their Bibles, their patriarchal religious ideologies, and the blessings of the Catholic Church and foreign state to usurp lands from Indigenous peoples. They came with their Christian ideals of womanhood and their white supremacist Christian ideologies and sought to destroy everything that did not conform to their limited understanding of Yahweh, or as my people call, the Great Spirit. They planted foreign flags in the earth to claim our territories and negotiated friendship with us while they wrote foreign laws that allowed them to steal our children and destroy our cultures in the name of assimilation. They tore apart our communities via targeted assaults on our women and children while promoting patriarchy in our systems of governance. This assault on our humanity was committed by religious leaders and settler state officials. They hid behind their religiosity and written texts, both foreign entities to spiritual oral peoples. They believed themselves culturally and morally superior to us heathens with our savage ways, and they proceeded to plot how they might save our souls by Christianizing and civilizing our peoples. The very purpose of the Indian residential school system was to, quote, get rid of the Indian problem and, quote, kill the Indian in the child. They created the Northwest Mounted Police, the precursor to the RCMP, to police our bodies and force Indigenous children to attend the residential schools. In the schools, they flooded our minds with twisted lies about God and who we were as peoples. This trauma caused generations of humans like my father to reject everything about their identity as Anishinaabeg, or the original people, while many held fast to a shallow, empty Christian faith, devoid of healing and love. In the schools, settlers tried to replace our ways of knowing, being, and understanding our Creator, and ourselves, with white, racist, Western, patriarchal perspectives of the Christian faith. At this point, you may be musing, well, that was a long time ago. Surely the church, the state, our ways of doing things have changed. Well, Yes and no. The overt racism and sexism of Christianity in the church is not as prominent as it was 150 or more years ago. But what if I told you that covert or hidden racism and sexism still runs rampant in both our state and churchly structures? These man-made systems, both the settler state ones and our holy religious temples, were built upon a foundation of Western patriarchal white supremacy and therefore require closer scrutiny and critique. There was a time when I was very new to this Christian thing, and the Western version of Christianity worked. I needed stricter guidelines for living a new life. I yearned for order and structure in my chaotic world, and I did not have room for nuances and living in the gray. Black and white was clear and simple. I needed the line to be drawn firmly in the sand. I needed a formula to teach me how to reckon with the ghosts of my past so I could become a new creation in Jesus. But even as I threw myself into the church life, I could never shake this feeling of being different, of not belonging. 
Over the years, I tried to plant myself in various churches, and the only place I ever truly felt at home was with other addicts and people who were honest about their brokenness, many of whom were Indigenous and all of whom had survived terrible hardships. The people I felt most at home with in the church were people who craved God deeply because they knew for them, like me, it wasn't a nice tradition they grew up with. It was a matter of life and death. I reckon by now you may be thinking to yourself, my church is not racist or sexist. Or, well, the church and state are no longer tangled as they once were. Things are different now. To this, I would ask you to reflect on a few things. First, how many Indigenous peoples call your church home? You may think your community of faith is open to all people, that everyone is welcome. But the number of Indigenous peoples who commit to worship and fellowship within your community of faith will tell you how hospitable you truly are and how relevant your Jesus is to the original inhabitants of these lands. You see, when white supremacist Christianity infiltrated these lands through settlers, the church told us that we could not be saved and know Christ if we retained our cultural and spiritual practices. They told us that we had to leave all of those heathen, savage ways behind us or drown in a lake of fire. As Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island are reclaiming our stolen cultures, how open are you to engaging with and respecting ways of knowing Creator God that look different from what you are used to? Does the thought of Indigenous cultures, spiritual practices, and faith together make you feel uncomfortable? Are you afraid that you may compromise your own system of belief if you honor practices outside of what you are accustomed to? Does the idea of Indigenous ceremonies and Jesus make you wince or cringe? If any of this resonates with you, you are sure to find Indigenous peoples who will not feel safe in your community of faith because they simply cannot be who they are in your church community. This is, of course, not a universal experience, as generations of us have been successfully assimilated to white Western culture and Christianity. However, this is a very real contemporary problem, one that I suggest needs tending across all denominations. If the church, if Jesus is to be relevant to all of God's people, the Western church needs to create space for Indigenous people to participate indigenously. Decolonizing Christianity is the opposite of assimilation. This means decolonizing the church is about creating space for indigeneity to bloom. Second, while the church and state are no longer as tangled in the proverbial social and political web as they were in our settler colonial beginnings, the hierarchical, patriarchal structures of the state remain omnipresent in church structures even in spaces like CMU, where the intention to make decisions as a community is built into the system. It is the oft-invisible legacy of settler colonial institutions in Canada that remain unacknowledged and unchallenged for the manner in which these spaces cater to whiteness and male privilege. What is not so obvious to those who fit the silent requirements of spaces like these is the alienation of one who may feel welcome but still does not feel quite like they belong. It is within these churchly spaces 
where Indigenous peoples must conform to whiteness in order to be acceptable, and quite frankly, often to even make it through the door. This privileging of whiteness in churches is routinely invisible to the most hospitable, well-intentioned, nice Christians. But it screams of ongoing colonialism when Indigenous peoples suggest alternative Indigenous ways of doing, only to be confronted with, that is not how we do things, or countered with, that is how we've always done things. The systematic colonial order prevails, Whiteness and the power that it wields goes unnamed and unchallenged because we are all nice Christians and we shrink away from difficult conversations. If I had a dollar for all the times I've heard, I don't see color or we are all God's children used as a blanket response to invalidating Indigenous experiences while upholding Western Christian privilege, I would have a good start on a college fund for my children. This is the legacy of white supremacist, patriarchal Christianity that will not die on its own. It needs to be destroyed. Mark 14.58 And we heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days I will build another that is made without hands. There is some confusion in this text as Mark claims this testimony against Jesus came from false witnesses. Matthew 26 in Matthew 26, 21, we see a parallel scripture that claims two men declared, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days as testimony against Jesus's supposed heresy. The actual words of Jesus appear in John 2, 19, where the religious leaders demand a miraculous sign to prove his authority from God. And Jesus says, all right, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The incredulous witnesses are appalled by the idea that a temple which took 46 years to build could be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. But let us think about that for a moment, what destroying the man-made temple could mean from Jesus' perspective. Jesus was clearly annoyed, to say the least, with the way that religious leaders were running the temple of God. He flipped tables over in anger at the buying and selling of doves and changing money in Mark 11, and condemns the Pharisees for being leaders who look good on the outside, but on the inside, they are evil in Matthew 23. He even goes so far as to call the religious leaders snakes and children of snakes. Jesus spoke out angrily against the leaders of the church who had come to value the customs, the religiosity of Judaism that privileged the few over loving the widows, orphans, and social outcasts, those who had no power, that Jesus chose to spend his time with. When the Pharisees demanded that Jesus show them a sign, why was it that Jesus countered with challenging them to destroy their sacred holy temple? Could it be that Jesus actually meant that he intended to destroy the religious ways of the man-made temple and all its hierarchies through his death and resurrection, while replacing it with a truly spiritual relationship with God through the Son? Are our churches today filled with Pharisees once again that value religion, rules, and regulations over authentic relationship with God and our neighbors, regardless of their cultural differences? Was Jesus telling us that regardless of who destroyed the man-made temples of Jerusalem, that his death and resurrection was intended to destroy our man-made temples and replace it with something far more valuable than patriarchal religious dogma? If Jesus were with us today— would he condemn the contemporary religious leaders of North America 
for their Western constructs of Christianity that so often build a wall between himself and peoples who honor God the Creator through a different worldview? In 2021, are we prepared to recognize that the Western view of Christianity and Jesus himself is not neutral, singular, or right, but rather has been normalized, rationalized, and assumed to be the one and only way to truly know God through Christ? If you are here today, I assume it is because you have a sincere desire to understand how Indigenous peoples reflect upon and think about Christianity in the 21st century, after hundreds of years of oppression at the hands of white Christian settlers. I have offered you one perspective, my personal reflections on the need to destroy or dismantle Western patriarchal white Christianity so that we can build a new temple much like Jesus did in his death and resurrection over 2,000 years ago. Although I can only truly speak for myself today, I can tell you with certainty that if Jesus does not hold any relevance for some of the most hurting and broken peoples who occupy this land and call it home, then we are failing as a church. If this Western version of Christianity holds no relevance for many Indigenous peoples, then we should collectively question how relevant our way of doing church truly is. Because I'm an academic at heart, I want to quote Indigenous literary critic Craig Womack, who reminds us, quote, The church has not only offended Indians, it has cut itself off from a relationship with the God it says it serves— who claims, among other things, to be a God of justice, to have created peoples for a reason, and to have put them in particular environments according to her will. This means the church not only needs to reconcile itself with Native peoples, but with God. Until the church rectifies this situation, it is fraudulent." End quote. Womack is calling on Western Christians to reconcile the fact that its collective offenses against Indigenous peoples are a contemporary part of its broken relationship with God. One way to repair this brokenness is to think deeply and critically about our ideologies, about faith, traditions, and cultures, to seek to understand and respect alternative visions of Christianity that work for peoples who had their own way of connecting to the Great Spirit before colonization— and to stop assuming the Western way of knowing Christ is the only way. Cultural and moral superiority is the illusion that upholds Western patriarchal white supremacist Christianity. It benefits the few to the detriment of many. As we prepare our hearts, minds, and spirits for this National Day of Truth and Reconciliation— I do not want to dismiss the challenges that remain in rebuilding the trust of Indigenous peoples with communities of faith. That is a long road to travel with multiple levels and generations of healing. But I do want to leave you with this final thought. If your spiritual belief system or your church does not allow for difference, if your community of faith is not actively working to create space for Indigenous peoples to come as they are, cultural, and spiritual practices and all. The risk becomes more generations of an irrelevant Jesus for people who do not fit the mold of a Western construct of Christianity. The provocative and somber challenge of Jesus remains relevant today. 
We must actively work to destroy this man-made temple. We must die to the old Western white supremacist ways of churchly things. Knowing it will take us a lot more than three days to rebuild a church that is respectful of peoples who are welcome to encounter the love of Christ and his church without compromising and leaving their indigeneity at the door. Indeed, if the church chooses to answer this call to action, it may find its own shackles loosed and a rebirth of a renewed relevance of our beloved Christ for all of God's people. Gichimigwich. Thank you very much. Once again, my thanks to Christy Anderson for her thought-provoking words. You can find my conversation with Christy about this sermon and our other podcast episodes on all major podcast platforms. If you want to share your thoughts, please get in touch through our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast. My name is Jonas Cornelson. Thanks for listening to this special feature episode. Talk soon.